Hello, this is James Kent. I'm the movie Morlock. Uh, back, uh, not a, an Oscar conversation this week. Uh, maybe the next episode will be. I'm still not going to watch the Oscars. I've committed that, unless they change their mind in the next couple days. Uh, but it sounds like every decision they're making is to cater to an audience that isn't going to show up anyway. And so now they've alienated the people who did, which is like people like myself. So I'm still staying out of it. Um, but I, I got a little bit of a different direction this week. Uh, I got a guest. He's been on the program before. Four uh, is my good old pal Al Frazier. Uh, Al, you are what the like a co-director uh, of the Cambria Film Festival? Is that correct? I'm actually the director of programming. Ooh, okay, the director of programming for the Cambria Film Festival is here, Al Frazier. Also, you know, uh, man about town. Raconteur, <laughs> adventurer, all, all sorts of things. Um, but, uh, you know, the Cambria Film Festival, you'd hope to have an in-person festival this year, but uh, then with the uptick in Omicron, I, I think that kind of got canceled. And so you still had the film, the film festival in February, but you had a um, virtual festival this year, right? Yeah, it, it was a real bummer because... You know, there was that window of time where we all got excited that, oh, we're, you know, on the downward slope and we're all going to be good here. And yeah, we could be in person again and this is going to be great. And we're going to have, we, we were even going to have a a, a, a a display of vintage typewriters. There was a short film <laughs> called Tyndall Typewriters uh, directed by a really interesting guy who has a collection of vintage typewriters. And he's like, I'm going to bring my typewriters. <laughs> and we're like, oh, this is this is great. So we had a lot of um, plans and, and fun stuff in the works. And sure enough, it got to the decision time and everything pointed in the direction of, nope, you can't you can't do it again. And uh, we'll go virtual. Uh, but I was really pleased with the lineup of films. We had we had just a great bunch of films and um, really good interviews, good panels. So. All in all, it was a success with um, the hope that we'll get there next year and uh, we'll do some fun stuff and we'll have people in the theater again. Yeah, I mean, there was a time where I was hoping that I was going to get to come out there. And I, before you even made the decision to go virtual, I was already like, yeah, that's not happening. I'm not going to be traveling out there at this time. It just seems like too much uh, stuff's going on. So, uh, you know, again, always next year, as they say. And I do hope that maybe I can come out in person. Um, I was actually looking forward to seeing you. Haven't seen you in many years. And then I was getting, uh, hoping to get a chance to... Uh, see face-to-face Craig Wasson, uh, who's in that area. And I think he was a judge on, on this year's uh, panel, correct? Yeah, he, yeah. Craig was a judge for us this year. And uh, yeah, it would have been great to have you here. And it would have been great to try to do a uh, remote podcast um, or something along those lines. Um, yeah, hey, next year, put it on the calendar, February. I bet you, no matter what, I mean, unless unless there's like some newer version that's like you know wiping people out left and right, uh, I feel like it's probably going to happen next year because it seems like uh, whether whether people like it or not or believe it or not, uh, it seems like people are just forcing some form of new normality to go back to things um, and just I guess deal with the pandemic and the the virus no matter what. Right. Yeah. We are actually uh, have a, a screening plan for April 28th, uh, a screening of Julia Blue, which is a film that was in the festival, I think, three years ago. Um, and it's it's a set in the Ukraine. 
and it's about it's a love story about um, a young woman and a soldier who um, meet each other and kind of get to know each other and won't go any further than that because I hope hopefully Julia Blue, um, the director, is now kind of in discussion about getting some distribution. It's a really good film. So I hope it gets out there. Um, and we're doing it as a fundraiser, of course, and um, kind of excited about that. And we're going to have um, people in the seats again. So looking forward to that. It'll be fun. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I go... I've been to actually been to like three movies already this year, um, and I, you know, I mean, I personally don't have a problem going into a theater and wearing a mask. I mean, I'm in the dark anyway, so uh, you know, if there's people around, I just wear a mask. Um, so I did that three times, and it was not a big deal. Um, and you know, I enjoy getting a chance to go back to the movies again. And even though I don't have a theater in town anymore, um, I did. I made some trips to go see it. I saw that the the new Batman movie, and I saw. There's a, an anime series that's on HBO that all the kids seem to like, this Jiu-Jitsu Kaizen. And my youngest, who's 10, he is a huge anime fan. And when we went and saw the Batman, he saw a poster. And he was like, what's this? And I said, oh, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's a film, kind of a prequel to the series. And he's like, oh, my, I'd like to see that. And even though he doesn't like to go for long drives, he really wanted to see it. And the kids had a day off uh, from school, like some kind of in-service day last Friday. So I took him up to see that. And uh, even though that's not my style of movie, I, I did enjoy it. And then a couple of days later, my uh, wife and I, we had like a moment on a Sunday afternoon. We we're like, you know what? Let's uh, let's take a drive. We really wanted to see this new horror movie called X. And right. uh really enjoyed that too thought it was definitely more of my kind of horror it had a, really a throwback to the it just reminded me of when i was a kid seeing a horror movie with my dad so that's great yeah it's it's fun that you know understand and are teaching your kids the value of seeing something on the screen because it's just not the same i know people have these wonderful theater setups at home and it's great, but you still get distracted by your phone. You still pause to go to the bathroom, to go to the refrigerator, instead of being in this communal experience where you don't have any control. You know, if you're gonna, if you got, if you gotta go, you're gonna miss something. So, I think uh, the theaters, hopefully, something seeing films in the theaters, something that will hopefully survive, thrive, not just survive, really. It was interesting because I've seen all 10 movies that got nominated for Best Picture this year, but when I looked at the lineup, eight of those 10 movies I saw at home and versus only two movies that I saw in the theater. And that's probably the biggest ratio. Maybe the year before, because of the pandemic was in full, that I had no choice but to see all those films you know, uh, at home. But it's just strange because that used to be not the norm. I might have seen only like one or two films on, at home versus the rest in the theater. They always made a big effort to see things in the theater, but now I have to go so far away that it's got to really line up with a convenient time. So, for instance, I could have seen Drive My Car at the theater. It was playing over an hour away. I could have seen Belfast. I mean, I could have seen almost every one of those films 
if I wanted to make the effort at the time. I think the one that I my biggest regret is not seeing Dune in the theater because that's really a big screen movie. Um, it really demands a big screen. Uh, so again, I think I mentioned it with Teal last episode. I think when the second movie comes out, if they maybe do a double feature kind of thing at an IMAX, uh, you know, that's going to be a few years down the road. And I, I really would like to get the full scope of that film. Yeah, that that's definitely definitely the film out of the ten that that uh, if if you had to pick one, uh, that would be the one I would pick to see on the screen. I, I actually snuck out and saw um, Licorice Pizza. Oh, you did. And now there's another film that it was shot in film, and um, I think that craves kind of the theater theatrical experience. Oh, it was great. Like you know, one to be in a theater again was great, and you know this theater near us has those those spectacular chairs, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, you could just, you could live in one of those chairs. It's like the chairs on, what, what was the uh, cruise ship in? Uh, yeah. In uh, Wally. In, <laughs> it's like, you just, you never want to get out of one of those. Well, well, you know, it's funny because, you know, what people don't know, they can't see you is you, you're like, what, six, five, six, six. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> something like that. But I mean, you know, I, I can imagine that you spent your whole life in these very uncomfortable cinema chairs and so finally, you're like, someone gets it. I can finally sit back and enjoy it. Oh, my God, yes. But I loved that film. I didn't expect to. I didn't know what I was in for. And, you know, a lot of the discussion had to do with things that really I don't think have anything to do with the film itself. You know, the portrayal of this and that, of that era and the age difference between the two characters. And it's just a love story. It, it just It's just a graceful, nice love story as immaculately set in an era you know that i'm i have fondness for because you know that was my childhood yeah me too and obviously uh, paul thomas anderson he's about two days older than me um so we're the exact same age pretty much and so even though we weren't adults in the 70s we definitely have memories and an affection for the way things were not 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 for some of the things that uh you know today we are a little bit like shocked at as sort of social behavior but it seems like a movie like this, the naysayers, uh, and it's, you know, look, there are a lot of younger younger uh, film lovers, I guess, that uh, anything controversial in terms of social behavior, it, it, it's shocking to them and it ruins the movie. Um, and I'm not, and I can't, I can't dismiss that if that's how people feel, but at the same time, so like, what are we to do? We want to have sanitized versions of stories so that there's nothing shocking or controversial in them. I, of course, never going to stand for that. Um, and I think that one of the things that gets people is most, even more than the fact that, uh, Alana Haim is like, you know, much older than the, uh, the the Cooper kid in the movie is the portrayal of the restaurant owner and his behavior towards his wife who is uh, Japanese and he kind of speaks this broken English to her and it gets laughter sometimes in the theater. And so people get horrified saying, well, look, you know, he's creating something that people are either taking the wrong way or, or, or having a laugh at it. And what I, I, I don't think it allows for the fact that sometimes in a group setting, when people are confronted with behaviors that aren't necessarily um, appropriate, they sometimes have different reactions. They sometimes laugh nervously or they may laugh out loud 
only because they can't believe something so inappropriate is being on there. Uh, I think of these people who, who find this stuff controversial, and they would be horrified to go back to 1989 when I was in this movie theater in New York City with a whole like sold-out crowd of my college-age kids seeing uh, Clockwork Orange and having hysterical laughter going on, including the girl that I was uh, on a date with um, when, like, the rape scene happened. Oh, boy. And it was the first time I'd ever seen the movie that way. Like, I, I, I like it was always horrifying and maybe kind of very uncomfortable. And I heard people, like, roaring with laughter. They found, like, a dark humor in the entire kind of scene. But I also think that they were reacting to something that's so horrific that laughter is what came out it's almost like how they can get through the scene interesting yeah yeah i never thought about that and uh, unfortunately i've never seen a clockwork orange on, on the screen with an audience it was a wild deal man wow, i can imagine and that is a horrifying scene and i think you're right i think it just it, it you release the pressure of that scene if you can view it in an absurdly comical black comedy way yeah interesting well you know the scene that uh like so like the first time that uh was i think the actor's name is scott cooper like it's you know it's uh phillips i mean it's not yeah not uh, cooper hoffman sorry so cooper hoffman philip seymour hoffman's son he's there with his mom and they are like you know they do the advertising for the restaurant and i think that the scene you know, which is very controversial. It's become very controversial, and there's a couple of scenes. But I think it's actually brilliantly directed because there's a lot that gets said without being said from the from the boy and the mom who are very uncomfortable. But they're in a position where it's 1973, and they and like she's a you know single mom trying to provide for her and her son, and she doesn't feel like she's in any position to say anything to this guy, but to take his business, and that you have to put up with these kind of awful characters if you want to make any kind of money. And so I, I think that when when something is well-written and directed, he doesn't feel like he needs to have a scene where right afterwards they talk about, boy, that guy's a creep or something. Like, that would be so easy to put in, um, but I think it's harder not to put it in. Um, and that actually have to let you think and absorb because I, I feel like this is the kind of stuff that Cooper Hoffman's character gets exposed to with all the adults in his life. And he's really trying to figure out um, who he is and how all these people influence his behaviors. So I, I, mean, I think there's a lot of layers into that comedy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I have to admit that scene or the couple of scenes, I, I was laughing, but I was laughing because it was so ridiculous but it was also so telling of that era you know i mean that's a scene that happened in one one form or fashion many times i'm sure in, yes. in different places and i think it's just uh, the uh, approach that i appreciate is more the idea of how absurd it looks and look where we are now we we've we're not we're not those people anymore you know well some people oh, oh, i was gonna say yeah quite a few people aren't those people anymore. They're, they're still there, I know, but... Well, I think people get upset when they see these things in film because they feel like we've already had so many bad examples throughout film history. Do we have to keep being reminded? Um, but I think that, uh, again, yeah, it's easier to just shut off the valve and then say, 
uh, you know, take another look back at these times. I mean, we already had things like, you know, like happy days and stuff, these very sanitized versions of like, you know, the fifties, the nostalgia kind of things. And, uh, I, I, I don't know. I think it's important to try to take a little bit of a harsher look back at the time that when we always keep talking about nostalgia, I, I feel like this is reflective of a movie that says, well, you want to get nostalgic, but you got to take some of the bad here with the good because it wasn't all as rosy as people like to think it was. Yeah, of course. And, and the Bradley Cooper character, same thing a little bit that, you know, his. <laughs> it's just- well, his whole behavior is reprehensible, <laughs> right? But see, he's like, and it's funny, you never hear any of the critiques l- l- levied against that character because it's so much fun. Yeah. But his character that he's portraying is like, you know, he's, he's really a, a sex fiend. <laughs> And it just makes his behavior, and same with the restaurant owner's behavior, um, feel ridiculous. You know, it just feels like you're an idiot, <laughs> and we're not the we're, we're better than that. Hopefully, <laughs> more than we were. <laughs> but even Sean Penn's character, you know, his character is sort of like based on William Holden. He's obviously <laughs> looking for for an, an evening with this young girl. Um, then, you know, you even have, when she goes to work, the political office, there's a character where he looks at her as the perfect beard situation. He brings her in to protect him from getting caught and outed in a homosexual relationship. Um, so it's, you know, there's a lot of men using women for things. Um, so I mean, again, I think that's like why I really think that licorice pizza is a great film because it's a comedy and then so much more. Um, but you have to be willing to kind of go in there and, you know, peel the layers back. You know, it, it, they make her strong in really interesting ways. Um, she's the one that gets it like she's the one that gets that the shortage of petroleum means there won't be water beds she's the one that has to save the truck you know and i think it's a i i took it as sort of a look at you know women of the era who may have you know had to have been second fiddle to the man but yet are the ones really who got it together and figured things out and in, in, in many instances got the job done. I thought that was pretty evident and presumably I would think deliberate in a way to say that, that, that yeah, women, women had it together in, in ways that men didn't and, and just didn't get credit for it. Well, let's put it this way. It isn't going to win any Academy Awards on Sunday. Uh, It's become too much of a hot potato. Um, But I guarantee you that long after the dust has settled and a film which apparently looks like the winner this year, Coda, um, people are never going to remember what what movie won this particular year and or when Coda came out. And it's not going to become a classic, whereas I think people are going to watch Licorice Pizza for years. Yeah, I'm going to watch Coda either tonight or tomorrow night, just so I have that reference. Because I, I really want to, you know, drive my car was brilliant. And Oh, you uh, did see it? I, I did see it, but I didn't see it in the theater. And I saw... I saw it at home. Yeah, yeah I saw The Power of the Dog. And um, I thought that was brilliant. So we're going to look at if Coda does win, you know, is it the situation that, you know, we went with the feel-good film versus the one that, you know, in 10 or 20 years, we're going to look back and say that was actually the best film of the year. Well, you know, it's funny. I now look, I was just thinking about this the other day because um, my TCM always does uh, this Oscar month where they show tons of movies. And uh, I kind of 
handpick a couple that I think that my oldest might enjoy. And we just watched The Sting. And The Sting won, you know, like seven awards. It won Best Picture 1973. And I've always enjoyed it, but I've always kind of didn't like that it won Best Picture because uh, two movies that I thought were better, The Exorcist and American Graffiti, were also nominated that year. And American Graffiti is one of my all-time favorites, so I, I, I would certainly would have gone there. But um, it's such a great crowd-pleasing movie, and it does remind me that the Academy loves that. And then two years later, Uh, And it was only because Robert Redford was in The Sting. I was thinking that one of my all-time favorite movies, and I really do think was the best film of like 1976, was All the President's Men. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's that intellectual, like it's it's said a lot, and it's kind of procedural, and it's a movie that's been around for years and you watch all the time. However, the crowd-pleasing film that won Best Picture that year, and probably was not as good as a movie like All the President's Men, but it's still a great movie, was Rocky. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that crowd pleasing, and of course, you know, the last year there hasn't been a, it's been a rock, it was a rocky, tumultuous year of 2021. And ultimately, as, as a, again, I think that Code is a very cliched movie. Um, and I don't think it does anything with the cliches, uh, but it is purely to grab your heartstrings. And it is, it, it is very hard. You'd have to have no heart not to get caught up by the end of the movie. Um, and I think that. It's manipulative that way, and that it's certainly manipulating Academy voters' hearts, where they're voting with their hearts, saying, oh, but I just enjoyed the coda. I come from Massachusetts. It's about fishermen and the idea that she um, helps her family and that she's so integral to helping their fishing business and going on the boat before school is completely ridiculous because – yeah, you could get up at 5 a.m., but you still have to get to school by 8, 8.30, and there's no way a boat's going to be able to go out to sea. Not, I, I, You have to understand and know Gloucester fishermen. You could not do that. It's an all-day thing. So the idea that she would be out there every day with her family and still going to school, that already, that premise is bogus. Um, and I know, you know, you know, if I even said something on Twitter, people would be down my throat, but that's just the God's honest truth. So I, I already am out. But, uh, you know, I'm curious to hear what you think. You know, there's a chance that uh, the power of the dog may win. And I think because, you know, they, they, well, Parasite won and Moonlight won, you know, so they're with the shift or the, 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 what they've increased the, the number of people in the academy and they, the shift of the, the demographics and the age might indicate that there's a chance that, that the film, you know, that power of the dog wins. I, I think that's, well, People also talk about Belfast. Um, but that's kind of like got taken a back seat lately to Coda. It seems like it feels like everybody feels like eventually has to consolidate into one group. I don't know why, but I think people don't want to be on a losing side. So they pick a, a champion and it feels like there's two camps. One that's really like the merits of Power of the Dog as a great movie that's really what is the best film of the year versus people that are like, yeah, but I found Power the Dog dull and whatever and Coda uplifted me. And so it's like you're not allowed to go into any other camp but these two. A lot of people I've been reading these uh, anonymous Oscar voter people and a lot of people like that Nightmare Alley. Um, I didn't like it that much, but a lot of uh, people are checking it out, uh, you know, on HBO and stuff and and thinking it's really good. I'd be thrilled if dune won because i i don't know that uh, power of the dog dune those are and drive my car i thought were all brilliant films these are all good and you know what it's funny i already i saw west side story in the theater 
uh, by myself. My wife wouldn't go with me. And we checked it out on HBO. And in five minutes, I'm not kidding, five minutes into the movie, my wife turns to me and says, is this still playing in theaters? And I said, well, I don't think. She's like, man, I really missed out. This is amazing. Like in five minutes, she was blown away. And we watched the whole thing. I thought I was going to maybe put it on to 20 minutes to see if she liked it. We watched the whole thing. And at the end, she was like, I can't believe I didn't see that in the theater. It is so amazing. And it really is. It's like a, it's a really good movie, not just a remake of, uh, you know, the 61 film. Um, I still don't think it was necessary that they make it, but uh, I don't think most uh, superhero movies are necessary either. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's another one. I, I, I have to see it. And it's just a matter of figuring out kind of when and. Eventually it's on. I mean, you have all the streamers, right? You have yeah. like HBO and stuff, right? Yeah, we do. Uh, French Dispatch, by the way, didn't get nominated for anything, but that's also on HBO. And uh, while I don't think it was Wes Anderson's best movie, um, it's still entertaining. <laughs> I'm such a, I'm such a, um, a, um, a love hate relationship with Wes Anderson that that I could go into a place of it not expecting much because it's just the you know the the, the style over substance kind of thing. It just looks right. great. They're they're amazing films. They're they're paintings. But I get bored, you know, and so I, I, I have not watched French Dispatch, but when I do, it'll be with that lens of, hey, this is going to look great and whatever else I get out of this, I'll probably really enjoy it as <laughs> actually, you know. I find for people who kind of go hot and cold with Wes Anderson, I can't predict which ones they're going to find hot and which ones they're going to find cold. So I can't tell you you're going to like or not like it. Yeah, I, I really like Moonrise Kingdom. That one got that, me. That, that, that fits you. You 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 totally like those coming of age stories. Which again, like licorice pizza, you're a coming of age fan. I am. Um, yeah. Which you know what brings us now. That's a good segue. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna jump in because like it brings us into uh, this is a topic that our main topic for today is something that you suggested to me. And there is a filmmaker, Italian filmmaker, uh, Paolo Sorrentino, and he is an Academy Award winning director of an Italian film, The Great Beauty. And he is also known for a couple of um, English language efforts. One is uh, Youth, and another is This Must Be the Place. And he also did uh, two limited series on HBO that were tied together. One was The Young Pope and The New Pope. And then he had his latest film, came out in 2021, nominated by Italy uh, for the International Best Film uh, by the Academy. And so it did get picked as one of the five nominees. It's a movie called Hand of God. It's on Netflix right now. And it is sort of Paolo Sorrentino's answer to Roma that came out a few years ago. He was very influenced. He saw that movie and felt that a story that he wanted to tell about his teenage years, he was reluctant to do so. But after seeing Roma and its sort of autobiographical spin, he felt more comfortable telling this story, which does have some kind of harder story elements in it. Um, so uh, you said, hey, maybe we should watch that. And I hadn't really seen any of his other films except for youth. So I took a little bit of a journey so I could catch up. You brought it up uh, in your podcast. Uh, I think your first Oscar podcast with Teal uh, about the hand of God. And I was saying, oh, gosh, you know, uh, yeah. If you check that out, let's talk about it. Because I like Paolo Sorrentino a lot um, as a director, and I have a lot more to see of his, but what I've seen, I've always been, um, oh, it's a combination of being mesmerized by and enthralled with, and, you know, I, I think he's got some real, um, 
some real interesting um, things that he explores and, and a real interesting style. He definitely, I would say, has a style. that That's why when we suggest a film, I like to see, make sure that I've seen several movies of the particular director because it takes, to me, it takes a good three or four movies so you can detect what kind of style, some of the patterns, the way they like to shoot, you know, certain kind of plot things that come up and themes. And, and definitely in this case, it was helpful to watch several of his films to get a sense of what he continues to do or what he what he's interested in and it is even also it's very interesting especially after seeing like hand of god and the great beauty then to watch a film that he sets in the u.s this must be the place <laughs> and you actually see how much of a european feel it is yeah in in relation to like what an american director story of that same uh idea would be but I did have like I found it difficult to get through Hand of God and The Great Beauty in one sitting. Oh, I yeah, did it in yeah. multiple parts. Oh, I thought you were and, watching a double feature. <laughs> no, I would watch because that's probably why it took so long before you'd mentioned this several weeks ago. And it's because I'll be honest, it, like I started with The Hand of God. I'm like I'm going to dive in. Um, and I, I kind of was a little off put with the filmmaking, the way it was shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because he has a longtime cinematographer uh, that shot most of his films, uh, Luca Bagazzi. And Luca Bagazzi did not shoot The Hand of God. Um, he had a different cinematographer. And, you know, what's funny is that he'd also, you know, shot a lot of, of these other films on on film. This is digital. And I kind of, I guess at the opening shot, it was one of these drone shots of the city of, uh, is it like Naples? And there was like, it's just, it was like, it was panning around. There was like awful lens flares. I just, I know it was ridiculous, but I was just like already like, I'm like, this is not a good way to start your movie. <laughs> and uh, I just, the widescreen use and the use of the wide angle lenses, it just, it just wasn't working for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real reason why I had to kind of stop was there's something that happens about halfway through the movie, an event, and it's really difficult. And it's based on things that happen in his real life. And then it just kind of, you know, I mean, justifiably, it puts a damper on the second half. And it was just hard for me to kind of go back and watch the kind of last act of the movie, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it took me by surprise. Um, and do we want to do want to protect against uh, yeah, spoiling? Yeah, I, mean, I think so. Well, no, I mean, because if you looked up the director, it is. So then the director was 16 and he's my age and he was born in 1970 and so was I. Um, so, so I can put myself at the exact same place in time, right? 1986, but yet this is 1986 in Italy versus 1986 in, you know, uh, in America. And his parents went away. They had like a little, uh, ski retreat or something. And, uh, there was an accidental carbon monoxide, uh, poisoning and they both died and he was supposed to go or he'd been invited to go with them but he wanted to stay back um, because his favorite soccer player had joined the like local team and he wanted to go to the game and so you know there's like this weird guilt of survivor's guilt but also you lose your parents and he has these dreams trying to figure out who he is you know so there's a lot of those uh standard coming of age stuff but it is hard because 
you're going in one direction with the family and then this this incident happens, which happened in real life. I mean, this story is based on his childhood and I think it's very autobiographical. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I what I looked up a little bit was that quite a bit of it is autobiographical with some elements that were added to sort of uh, round out the, the story. But yes, the, the story of his parents dying that way is, is the true story of his life. And um, from what happens in the second half of the film seems to be the, the, the principal cause of his journey into being a filmmaker. I mean, I think he, he, he was lost, needed a place to go. In the second half of the, of the film, it's a series of, of moments where he looks for guidance from other other guys, other males in his life. First, he goes to his brother, and his brother's like ready just to party. You know, his brother likes just, I'm going to enjoy life. And uh, it was Fab, Fabi, uh, Fabulito, right? Yeah, and his brother's older too, like a few years older. So his his brother doesn't really suddenly want to become a parent. Yeah, but he, you he's, know? <laughs> he's saying, "I'm ready to do something. What do we do next?" And he says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna stay here on this island and, and jump into the water with my friends." And then he goes um, goes to the friend who's in prison, looking for guidance. And then he finds a director. Kind of happens upon a film director, and I think that's I think there's a lot of sort of conjecture there i don't i mean it's never feels like a real scene all those scenes feel like um um pieces of 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 a novel or of a short story that well it's kind of it's picaresque i guess is what you say you know these adventures and that seems to be that's what i've discovered now right watching going back and seeing his other movies this is very reminiscent of sorrentino style of making movies absolutely it's not his journeys aren't thrust with this, you know, involved narrative that you're really trying to wait and get pieces of some kind of history that you're going to put together and and then, you know, enjoy for the kind of revelation of it. It's more of a, a journey a little bit into the soul, if you will, of trying to figure yourself out, I think, in a lot of ways. And I always liked those films. And again, as you said, I, I am a kind of a sucker for coming of age stories. Um, and the one thing about the, well, the title Hand of God and the the, the soccer player you mentioned, it's really yeah. sort of integral to everything about the film because it's more of yes. a, it's more, he, he's, he's, you know, Diego Maradona, who was, if not one of the best, the best soccer player of all time, who they worship in a godlike way and uh you know the idea of the hand of god has something to do with the divine but also something to do with a goal that diego maradona scored with his hand rather than his head right. <laughs> and it's it's you know it's this sort of um um oh it's a look back at that era and how much you kind of um how important all that was to him at the time and how it all pieces together to allow him to venture forth and, and, and become a film director. Yeah. I mean, and, and look, no mistake, this film and a lot of his films are very, I think specifically Italian. And I, I think that's why sometimes it's fun to see films that are not just in your language uh, and your country because different cultures 
you get a different point of view, and certainly this feels very Italian. I feel like this and The Great Beauty, they definitely uh, owe more than a wink and a nod to Fellini, uh, especially The Great Beauty. Uh, I, I think, obviously, he's a big admirer of Fellini, um, and you know you don't really see people ripping off Fellini too much here in the United States, uh, but he does have a very sort of Fellini-esque approach to the characters and the way he films them, especially in The Great Beauty, um, sort of, I guess, the, the grotesqueness of this bourgeois society that the lead uh, character, Jep, who's played by his frequent collaborator, uh, Tony Servillo, obviously these these people are not your everyday average uh, Italians. They're kind of the elite. Um, and he definitely makes a comment on them, much in the way that Fellini does with his movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's There's so much Fellini in these films. And... Um, that's the one thing that I kind of enjoyed. And there's even a, there's a direct homage right at the beginning of this. And I, so I don't think Sorrentino's trying to do this slyly. I think it's, I think it's there. There's a, the traffic scene. I don't know the very beginning of the film. It's that it's, it's exactly how eight and a half opens, you know, this getting stuck in traffic. And there's a couple shots that I, I would imagine that you go back, they're almost identical. So I think he is tipping his hat. To, to the influence of Fellini. There's a lot of magic realism at play. Mm-hmm. That kind of steeped in these various weird Italian myths. Um, you know, like seeing that the little monk, is that the, the uh-huh. character that, that <laughs> mentioned at the beginning and then, of course, comes back at the end. But that's with his, you know, infatuation with his aunt, who's literally crazy. Um, so the magic... Maybe. Re- well... <laughs> I mean, I don't know if she's as crazy as the society's put her into and the husband who's kind of a jerk. Well, yeah, that might have been the lack, the fact she couldn't have a child and the fact that she was married to an abuser. But she does end up in a, in a some sort of an asylum. So, you, you know, you think that there was some real element of um, imagination with the, um, the little Pope. The little Pope. And it was also, I found the, 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 the whole, and again, this was the part where I didn't really like was this, his quest to lose his virginity. And I guess <laughs> how he lost it. That was a little creepy. I don't know how much that mirrors a real story or not, but it definitely was a little strange. It was more than strange. And funny enough, when you said, <laughs> yeah. when you said the scene that really puts you off the first time up for a second, I thought, oh, it must have been the sex scene <laughs> with the losing <laughs> the virginity scene with the Empress. Was it the Empress no. or what was her name? The Contessa? I, I, or? I don't know. I see. I thought she, this was what we, weird because again it's hard when you're not italian i thought she was like their grandmother or something i didn't realize she was just a neighbor she's like you know the grand grand yeah. you know <laughs> woman of the the arena there but yes it was a very disturbing um awkward awkward to say the least scene it was a giving scene in a lot of ways i mean it was like this woman was doing him a favor which is maybe i mean maybe not something that we're allowed to do anymore talk about her <laughs> hey listen i don't if you didn't if you if you found licorice pizza offensive you're yeah. gonna have a lot of problems when you get to hand of god oh yeah yeah definitely um i don't know i thought you know i have seen hand of god twice now because i wanted to review really? it really prior wow. well I, yeah i wanted to like have it fresh in my mind for this and it just was like I don't know. She was wise. She knew what he needed and it seemed to have an effect with him. You know, I, I, yeah. Um, uh, you know, then he, he starts, you know, he's, he's matured a little bit and, and 
that's all part of his journey to figuring out what to do with himself after his, you know, the demise of his parents. You had mentioned, and I was intrigued by it, you had mentioned this film, This Must Be the Place. And I had not seen the film, but I, I, I knew about it because it was kind of had a notorious history in that I knew that Sean Penn had signed up to do this, uh, um, you know, first English language movie by this guy, Paolo Sorrentino, um, who was this Italian film director. He hadn't released The Great Beauty at the time. And then the movie seemed to never show up, and it kind of was shelved for a while, and eventually it hit Cannes, and it kind of got a very mixed reception at Cannes, um, with people kind of thinking Sean performance, uh, Sean Penn's performance was like kind of laughable and weird, and uh, then the movie didn't really get released uh, in United States. It was 2011 that it was at the Cannes Film Festival, but then in 2012, it did have a very small art house release. And it never was one of those titles that really showed up a lot on um, streaming. And when you first mentioned us doing this show, I actually looked for it, couldn't find it. But uh, as I was winding down and had seen The Great Beauty and The Hand of God, I was like, boy, let me just take another shot at it. And I found uh, it was playing on HBO Max. So I was able to watch This Must Be The Place. Um, and I'm kind of curious cause I think you said you really liked it. So I, I kind of want to hear your thoughts on it before I give you my thoughts on it. <laughs> I like it. I like it in that way that you like that peculiar thing or that, you know, weird piece of art over there, you know, that you, fa- <laughs> you, you find something in it that's, um, just different, you know, and, and unique and not at all what you're expecting. When you see Sean Penn's in a film, you don't expect him despite the cover of, of, you know, the poster and everything to look like Robert Smith from the cure and, and then be this odd, you know, sort of, I mean, the, the, the problem with the film, and I, I like it in the sense that I, I don't think it's an excellent film. I just think there's a, you know, you can, you can have a whole conversation about the trouble with the film. And a lot of it has, I mean, some of it has to do with plot, of course, because he's not really that interested in plot. But most of the criticism and the, where you have to land uh, is whether you can stomach the performance, the performance of Sean Penn, who is this aged Robert Smith kind of former pop star living in a mansion in what Ireland and is just this oddball guy. Um, and and I, I, I fell for it in the sense that I, I, you know, it was weird and I liked it, but do I think it's a great performance of any kind? No, no, no. But it's, it's something that you're not going to see anywhere else, nor if you decide to watch it, it'll be really unexpected. You know what? I, 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 I mean, it is not, it isn't a great film, but see, I feel like everything these days is an all or nothing. Like it's sort of like, is it an action packed Marvel movie or is it an Oscar worthy film? There doesn't seem to be enough room for those sort of independent little gems that, yeah, they're not great, but they kind of stick with you a bit and that there's Mm -hmm. some just oddball charm to them. And this kind of feels like one of these movies that I might've liked seeing at these art repertoire uh, theaters in the 80s when I was a teenager and kind of championing a little bit, but that there's just no room for them these days. They don't get big theatrical releases unless they, they're they going to get nominated for Oscars. Yeah, and it's really, I don't want to give away too much because I, I did describe the story to my wife because it is one of those things where when you tell the story of this movie, it is pretty bizarre. 
<laughs> it's yeah, it's entirely bizarre. I do feel like because of the way the film reveals itself, certain things aren't so clear and you don't really quite, it doesn't spell everything completely out. And even you have to do a little reading up on the movie afterwards and realize, oh yeah, okay. Like I didn't, because of where he goes on his mission in America, you don't kind of really understand the little stops he makes. It, they all seem like those little road movie type stops where you meet some characters. But what you don't understand, because they don't really get into too heavily on it, is that he's actually visiting the people that are associated with the person that he's seeking out at the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, like, he goes and visits the guy's, like, wife. And this is old school teacher. And he's getting information about her. And he pretends that he, like, w- that he was, like, in her class. And you realize that he isn't, that he's actually trying to understand a little bit about her and her husband. Um, and he gets some information, and then she talks about seeing this grandkid. And then uh, then he goes and kind of finds her, and she's like this um, waitress. Mm-hmm. And he visits her, and, and it's just some interesting stuff. And uh, then there's a backstory on his character and kind of how he sort of his arrested development happened. Um, and why his career stopped because of a tragedy uh, of some of his admirers when he was a pop star or a, I don't know, an alternative rock star. Um, And then there's some kind of gray areas there too. Like uh, he has this relationship with this mother daughter in, in, um, in Ireland, you know, the daughter who's Uh like sort of point and he, and he hangs out with her, but like, I don't understand what, what, what his relationship with her is like, how does he know her? And and the, the the time spent there didn't fit probably the rest of the story in in any real way, other than just to show the world he was coming from. Uh, Yeah. There's, there's holes there. There's, there's, you know, if you were going to pick this apart, there's some real problem problems, but you know, the the charm of that part of the movie is that one scene he's playing handball in a in an empty swimming pool with Francis McDormand. Yeah, <laughs> who's his wife in that movie too? By and the she's way, she's a firewoman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's see. really weird. And then um, and then they go to a mall. He he goes to the mall with the daughter of the woman you were talking about, who's goth, who's dressed as a goth. And they listen to this band who plays this really sweet song and actually looked up the band and it's called the piece. Their band is called the pieces of shit. And that's, it's just, it's odd. And that's what I liked about it. Now, you know, I don't know if you know who the girl is. I don't right? No. Yeah. Her, her name is, is, is Eve Hewson. And she's been in a few things. She was really good in this HBO show, the Nick, but she is the daughter of Bono from you too. No way. Yeah. Oh, that's that's really cool. Yeah. So this was one of her first roles, and I, I I knew her from a few years later playing this nurse in the Nick, and so it was kind of wild to see her there. And I couldn't figure out whether or not there's there's a relation there between her and her mom, and the two boys who had committed suicide because that family shows up at the Greystone because Sean Penn had moved to Ireland to be close to the people who killed themselves uh-huh. for somehow because of his music. So he visits their grave every week and the parents don't want him there. But I don't know if this girl and her mom have anything associated with that. I don't think it was very clear. No, it wasn't. Um, and I did read one thing that there was a, there's seven minutes in the international or in the Italian version that didn't end up in the 
um, international release. So really? I just wonder if those seven minutes had something that would help tie, <laughs> tie, that, tie, tie that, those elements into the whole picture of this film. Uh, because it does end in an odd way with, um, you know, well, I shouldn't really get into that, but anyways, it does end with a, a, an interaction between the, the woman and, and Sean Penn that it, it, the emotion you're supposed to get from that moment at the end of the film, I didn't feel was realized because there were holes to that part of the film. Yeah, like I said, there's something missing there. Um, and then again, it's a weird movie. The Like an American film and the way plot structure happens would not have a film like this where you kind of go in one direction and then the plot sort of starts to finally happen and then you kind of go he has to go to new york to visit his dying father uh but he's agoraphobic and he's afraid to fly and so he ends up having to take a cruise and then his father's dead at that point um and then you open up into this whole new story of that has to do with the holocaust and that is sort of like where most movies start with that point mm-hmm but his is other. So it's like, again, it's not strong with its plot and it's kind of meandering and weird and bizarre. And then there's this sort of subtext with this must be the place is actually a talking head song. And you got David Byrne in the movie <laughs> playing himself. Um, and then there's several versions of that song. And there's that little boy who's the son of the, uh, the, the you know, the, the waitress, and he sings a version of that that he doesn't realize is originally a Talking head song. He sings the different version of it. I mean, it's a really, again, it's just a weird movie to talk about, and I guess that's what makes it kind of fun. And also, you know, Sean Penn, I think his commitment when he plays these odd, be- you know, odd roles, he is so committed. That's what I think strikingly bizarre, because it just doesn't seem like this is something that Sean Penn would do. Yeah, exactly. And he was coming off of what? what did, wow, I just I looked it up. What was he doing before that? Um, it was one of his uh, most noted films. Yeah, he went for it in a way that was fearless. And if <laughs> if I'm going to do the, oh, the Tree of Life, he did the Tree of Life in the same year. Which, oh yeah, that's yeah. Right. It was a bold decision that. Um, as I said, is it going to is it going to sit well with everybody? But if you're along for that journey, I think it's a really um, there's some real touching, real um, nice sentiments in the mix of his kind of whiny, soft, like you know, he goes and he plays ping pong right, <laughs> with the restaurant. That was a funny scene. Well, he's also, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess his character is also a little neurodivergent because he has no filter mm-hmm. in how he says things. He's very frank, um, but he comes up very, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm getting, I think that they thought they were kind of maybe hitting a home run here with this offbeat movie. And it was a complete fit. I mean, no, it was a failure uh-huh. at the time. Critical, nobody saw it. So maybe it's what's kind of cool. And we always try to champion this on uh, like whatever, whether it was uh, stuff we've seen or now the movie Morlock. I always try to, champion the odd duck movie that whether you love it or just like it it's certainly different than anything out there and i think that uh, this must be the place is certainly that you know one thing i was always thought about with this film and the reason because it sat in my memory and when we thought about doing this i brought it up um because i wanted to go back to it because it had been a long time and it just uh, seeing it just was like what was that it's a cult film 
with no cult audience yet. And that leads me to the idea of is, can there be such thing as cult films anymore? Cause it always was for me, a cult film was that film you always heard about, but you couldn't see cause you know, it wasn't out on yeah. video or it wasn't being, didn't, didn't screen anywhere. It was these films you heard about, but it was so hard to see. And now with your ability to see anything you want, whenever you want, can that happen anymore? Can there be quote cult films as we know that term? For me, again, this is me growing up, you know, like you, like in the eighties when cult films really were kind of hitting prominence. I think that having a theater and being in a market where there was a theater that might show these films, these odd films as a part of revival for you to discover, not just discover on video, but like, Hey, for you in the know, we're going to show you this film. Like we're going to show you right. these John Waters movies, right? right? Yeah. Things that I knew. Like, so I had the Somerville theater and I had the Brattle. Um, not a lot of, you know, people in the country had access to those, but then I think video opened it up and video, you know, people, they, movies did become cult hits on video. I mean, Big Lebowski would not be the cult hit it was today if it hadn't found a huge audience of people on video. The audience of people that like normally would never go to the theater to see a film like that, but discovered, hey, I can enjoy a movie like this. And then having the ability to have screenings of a film like The Big Lebowski, um, you know, annual screening so that people could then take their love of the movie that they've only had at home and see it with an audience. Mm -hmm. And that's where the pandemic comes into play. It's harder. And a lot of, you know, independent film theaters are struggling and shutting down. And so, you know, do we have that opportunity? So like a movie from a few years ago, I really enjoyed Mandy um, with Nicolas Cage. I feel like, and then the movie Pig that came out this past year, which I thought was really great. Those are like a double feature that are really complete opposites, but they both have Cage that I would love to see as a double feature in a revival house mm -hmm. and maybe with a crowd of people that like would really kind of cheer on some of the more insane things that happen in Mandy. But I don't know if those we have that opportunity a movie like this i don't know what you'd pair this must be the place with maybe you would start <laughs> by pairing it with like one of his films like this must be the place and the great beauty like yeah. i would i would pair hand to god with roma right that's like kind sure. of two inch and then maybe find a third american film that was covering the same ground i don't know which one that would be but you'd put the hand of god uh then you'd put roma and what would be a good autobiographical look at somebody's oh, dazed and confused maybe dazed and confused okay yeah i mean you know that's not a bad uh it's it's totally three different movies but they all have sort of a theme you know yeah hey um i had a i have a little story about great beauty but i'm curious what your thought was about the great beauty well, I mean, I, I have to say overall, I, I, I wasn't digging Paolo Sorrentino movies the way that you did. Mm -hmm. um, they just, I mean, there's certain things that I didn't like about the way they're shot. The Great Beauty is another one that I felt like it owed heavily to Fellini mm -hmm. and didn't have a strong plot. And I was kind of, you know, I watched it over a series of times. So I was losing a little bit of the thread to like, wait a minute. I, there's, there's, again, he doesn't explain a lot of things. So you, And of course, if, if it was maybe in English, you'd, you'd pick it up a little bit differently. Um, I do like the lead actor that he worked with, Tony Servillo. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's definitely an interesting uh, character, but I also thought it was very Italian. And that I think some of the way that the thought process is very Italian and not very American. So it was a little harder for me to relate. Um, but I do remember from even a few years ago, even before I ever did a, a podcast, you talked about the great beauty as something you really liked. 
Yeah, and I'll tell you how I came to like it so much. But before that, the the film meanders so much that it does. It, if so, if you're expecting a plot of any kind, you know, you'll be disappointed. If you're just willing to sort of like float into this dream of Rome and this journey into these weird places. I think it's visually, you know, beautiful. And I think that, you know, I, I love being in these, these environments that I'll never be in because. Well, have you just, ever been to Italy? I have. You have, you ever been to Rome? I have. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Rome. I mean, back in 2005, but uh, it was like, I mean, it definitely like there is a, you know, even just going there for a few days, there is a weird energy and spirit to Rome. That's different than any other place I've ever been. I need to go back. I was, I traveled, uh, I, you know, that was a trip. I, I was by myself and it was in the winter and, uh, and not that it was cold in Rome or anything like that, but it was a weird, it was just out of college and it was this weird sort of time in my life. And I was just kind of meandering m myself like, <laughs> like the film, <laughs> uh, but you know, the most vivid thing, I, the most vivid memory I have of Rome is, is seeing gypsy kids accost a group of, um, Japanese um, tourists who then the police came running over and they, they had the gypsy kids against the wall and they made them all lift up their shirts to see what they had taken from these Japanese tourists. So wow. it's this, it's this weird kind of thing where I, you know, like a lot of that, a lot of Europe that I did on that trip, I don't feel like I really got the sense of Europe because it was a different age. And, you know, it was sort of like, see the stuff trip, you know, instead of like, understand the culture and kind of soak it in and you know i was too young to to do that but anyways my, my this might be why i've got such a sort of jump into like appreciating sorrentino is um i went down to see the great well i, I went down to the santa barbara film festival it's a couple hours south from where i am now and um didn't know anything about anything and i i was teaching at a junior college part-time at the time and the, the 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 head professor took students down there and he invited me to come along so it was great so you know i got some tickets and you know we were there for a couple days and um i just decided i'm going to see this film called the great beauty it looks kind of interesting and <clears throat> they have these different lines there you know if you're a pass holder of this level you get put in first and then this level and so there was a good chance i wasn't going to get to see the film and then I was in the line with just regular tickets and then I got in and I was pretty close to the screen and it was this big giant screen. And, um, the film starts off with this, this party on a oh, rooftop. I know. That part's pretty wild. Yeah. It's insane. But to see it and the sound, it was loud and it was just so powerful. And it was just this jarring, um, entry into this world of Rome and the, these rich people and things. I was just mesmerized and I ended up being mesmerized by the whole film. And then Sorrentino was there and, and did a Q and a, and it was just kind of this great film experience that, um, you have a few of those, you know, and, and I probably have 10 or so I could tell stories about, and that was one of them. So I kind of fell in love with that. And then I did buy the DVD and I've seen the film a couple of times since. And it's that, um, you know, I must uh, like like coming of age. I'm a sucker for guys. This will tell you something, right? Guys trying to figure <laughs> out what they're doing with their lives, which isn't really a genre that's appreciated probably as much anymore. But 
I don't know. I, I fell for that and I fell for him. And since then, I've, I've found something to enjoy in everything I've seen of his, including the, the weird, the weird young Pope, which I only got through two episodes. But. <laughs> I've only watched, because I, I, I had a little time before we finally got on the mic here. And uh, like the other day, I, I did put one of the episodes on to watch. And um, it's funny, in, in a lot of ways, it kind of reminds me of... Uh, the Netflix series The Crown that I enjoy a, a tremendous amount uh-huh. in, in just in that sort of the political maneuverings and things that go on in these worlds that seem so foreign to so much of us. Um, so it, it, I might, I might now, even though that the episode here is going to be over in a minute, I, uh, I, I think I may continue just to see where the, the, the young Pope goes. Um, but you did say something very important uh, that we keep harping on on this program for those who've listened for all these uh, scores of episodes is that, you know, I had one reaction seeing the great beauty at home, m- multiple viewings, watching a few minutes here, watching a few minutes there. It's not really the, the way that the director intended you to watch this movie, the director intended you to watch this movie the way you got to watch this film um, with this big crowd. And it kind of takes me back to some of the champions of two movies that are nominated this year that I didn't really like, which was Coda and King Richard. And the thing is, the people that really liked those movies saw them in these festival settings. They first saw Coda at... Sundance, uh, right? Sundance, yeah. yeah. And then also, and you know, when you're caught up with a big crowd, crowds that you can maybe even hear sniffles and you feel that emotion and the energy, it does change your perspective on the movie. You can get caught up, you can get lost in a movie in a way that you just can't at home. And that's why, uh, you know, I'm all, I don't like the fact of all the things that we've lost in the pandemic, but from a personal note, it's really the filmmaking experience because man, you just, you just enjoy film a different way. I mean, West Side Story is a film that really should be seen on the big screen to really appreciate the cinematography, to get caught up hearing the beautiful sound, um, licorice pizza. Uh, you know, you, you got to have a theatrical experience, a movie that tries really hard to give you a feel that you're actually watching a movie made in the 70s. It, it really is great to watch it in a theater, um, you know, and I got to see it in 70 millimeter, which was almost like getting a, you know, a film experience on steroids. And so I keep trying to get those memories when I can, because, you know, the experience in a theater is worth it. Yeah, I agree 100 percent. You know, that, when was the last time you went to a movie theater before that licorice pizza? Before licorice pizza, it was once upon a time in Hollywood. Wow, that's a long time ago. That was before the pandemic. <laughs> it was, and oddly enough, I was—I I, I felt there was some symmetry there because that film, you know, was set not too far from that um, seventy-three. What was it, sixty-nine or something? For yeah, sixty-nine. Yeah. And that was uh, that was another sort of wow the, that era. You remember that era? I, I and, and so there's this weird sort of thing to see those two films in a theater and have that kind of because I really liked um, Hollywood. And I thought, well, how could you edit those films together? Like, <laughs> could you just not worry about the three or four year gap and just figure out a way to intersect those films and tell those two stories in a whatever it would be four hour or five hour, what you know, if you want to break it up into parts, fine. But you could almost do that. You could you could have you know Brad Pitt driving down the car one way, and then we cut to the truck 
<laughs> rolling down rolling down the hill backwards, you know, that kind of a thing. Well, I think where they have in common is that they both take elements of some real people and real events that happened in California history, uh-huh. and then they have fun with it. They yeah. bend the genre a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, I actually had to go look up, because some of this stuff, I think which is interesting about Licorice Pizza, again, we're now where the end is the beginning is the beginning is the end. We're coming back to Licorice Pizza, is that the story What's so original is it just feels like, like who could have thought of these things? And a lot of the experiences, they're, you know, obviously fictionalized, but they came from this guy's friend who was in Hollywood. And, you know, there was these things about like weird rules about having a pinball uh, arcade in LA and that like the band got lifted. Um, But then, of course, in the waterbeds and it was very, you know, interesting of how that market probably dried up because of the petroleum issues and the... I remember the waterbed store having beanbags too. I I really believe that was some sort of a tandem. Like, oh, you don't want a waterbed. How about a beanbag? But the, you know, one of the first record stores I frequented was um, a licorice pizza in Costa Mesa. Wow. And um, so when I heard that title, I said, you got to be kidding me. That's crazy. And then, you know, it wasn't really about, obviously it wasn't about albums or vinyl or anything like that. But uh, just neat that that was lifted from from that kind of reality that there's something was called licorice pizza. I like movies like Amer- I mentioned American Graffiti. So American Graffiti, what does that mean? It doesn't mean, but it meant everything. It kind of fit that movie. It's American Graffiti, just like licorice pizza. It didn't really have a place in the film, but yet it, it summed it up. It did. And, and we didn't talk about that, but you, that, that's a perfect film. <clears throat> I mean, I can't think of which film American graffiti. Oh yeah. I mean, what, what, what would you change? What would you nitpick about even nitpick about that film? It's so good. I, you know, I, I love every frame of that movie. Um, there's certainly, you can always nitpick everything, but, uh, I love it. I mean, it's a film that my parents exposed me to when you still had the, you know, the networks would have their, you know, Wednesday night movie or their Friday night movie. And the first time that that became available, my parents were like, oh, you got to watch this film. And then like, it's past my bedtime and them letting me stay up for one more commercial just to see certain parts that they loved. And so that became this favorite of mine that anytime it was on, I had to watch. And I've seen, you know, that's like one of those sort of collection of movies where, uh, what movie have you seen at least 10 times or more? That's mm-hmm. certainly one of them. American Graffiti is definitely one that I've seen like, 10 times or more. There's so many storylines that would be interesting. You know, there's like, you could find ways into that film, even at, at six years old that are just cool. You know, the adventure of the, the you know, the, the, the gang guys gang, I guess, you know, the, the, the bike, the, the biker club, yeah, biker the, the car club. club. That's it. Yeah, they were taking, a car club. yeah. Taking Richard Dreyfus out for these um, adventures and the, the, the hot rod racing scenes and yeah it's just cool and even if you don't quite know what's going on or you can't relate to the story necessarily you get that it's just cool you know yeah i mean I'm, I'm a sucker for that genre the the sort of coming of age teenage experience all in one night and only because again i don't know what i don't know about teenagers today and what their experiences are but you know to a lesser degree i kind of had that experience in the 80s where 
you know, it's a Saturday night and maybe you finished your job and now like, what else are we going to do? And you don't really have a plan. So you end up driving around looking for something. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that still happens today, but uh, you know, cause you I mean, you didn't have, you didn't have phones or a car. So you kind of, you got in and you said, well, maybe we'll run into some people. And sometimes you did. Yeah. A lot of times we'd end up at the movie theater. Um, we'd end up either at the Mesa, which was a, discount theater at that time it was like a buck or two bucks to get in but even at two bucks we would try to sneak in the back door which was usually (laughs) jarred open and if we had figured out a way to get some beer we brought it in with us and you know saw films like nightmare on elm street and and i saw scanners there and it just so many memories of just doing that of just cruising around uh, okay let's you know let's try to sneak in the mesa <laughs> you know let's let's go do that and, oh it's great yeah and i think that's sometimes where, where we get nostalgic or sad because i don't think i think those are the things that we really weren't thinking about wonder what the future is going to be like we just assumed that these are the types of experience that would be there for our kids and it's a little surprising that for a lot of kids that that experience just isn't even available anymore yeah and it's it's just not done the same way and maybe there's a maybe we're just parents are just so much more careful with their kids has something to do with it or i tell my kids this all the time or at least i told my oldest is the one that really kind of likes movies and he watches a lot of films on his like you know on his computer and he has never been to a movie with just his friends like mm. i've never just dropped him off to, i don't even have a theater in the town anymore but never drop him off with his friends or him seeing a movie by at his age i used to go to the movies routinely by myself uh i since i was like 10 my mom would drop me and sometimes my sister off with my friend glenn and his brother we'd all go together to the movies no parents they just drop us off Mm -hmm. and that doesn't i think happen often anymore maybe it does in locations where there's tons of multiplexes and stuff but it's just strange that that's an experience that I know they haven't had, and I already had. So there's, they're never going to have that same experience as I had because my oldest is going to be 14 and he still hasn't had it. Yeah, I remember, oh God, what was that, eighth grade or something, going with a friend and we said we were going to go see one film and we went over and snuck into Halloween, which, <laughs> which was like a bad idea for me because that just scared the shit out of me. And so I think my mom figured that one out because I wasn't really talkative and I didn't have a lot to say about the movie. <laughs> it was probably, yeah. I was probably still scared. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, oh, you know, it's always that, you know, the mem- your memories, you know, the way we were kind of thing. And you just want your kids to kind of have experiences that are at least equal to that. And, and then you don't know that they're going to. And, but they have their own and, and they'll reminisce about what they did and how they grew up and things like that. So it's just us getting old, I think. Yeah, we're just a couple old farts. Um, <laughs> so anyways, hey, hey audience, thanks for uh, tuning in and listening. Um, I think that uh, like every program, we try to give you some films to check out and see. And I think we've got uh, several that can be put on your radar screen. Um, now, Al, you, you also have a store down in downtown Cambria. That people could go check out Al at your story, the, <laughs> the Love Story Project. Is that, that that's that our, Yeah, that's our, our shop. And, uh, you know, Cambria is a really tiny place. It's on um, Highway 1 kind of at the south end of Big Sur, not too far from Hearst Castle. And uh, we've had this little shop for seven years now, and it's been great. Um, 
we got started recording love stories from we were wedding photographers and we thought it'd be cool to start recording love stories and so we did that and we decided to take that project and make it into a shop and we're the project has sort of fallen by the wayside unfortunately we, we just haven't been recording and posting many stories it gets to be harder to do that when you're trying to just keep the business going and right and and you know raise a kid and do the film festival but it's really a goal of ours is to kind of get the kickstart the project the love stories are so cool in the sense that it, it, there, there's so much universality in, in in a love story of how we met you know and there's always something kind of cool about either a how we met story or what made us fall in love with this person we weren't in love with them and now we are and so my wife and I are really hoping that you know we we get back on it and we start recording stories and the, the, the shop's fun. I mean, people come in here and it's a good vibe and, and I think they enjoy it and hopefully buy something. <laughs> well, maybe you should, uh, maybe you should get it back together again. And also like, uh, you get some clearances and like put together like your own, like sort of short film project called the love story project and have it at your own Cambria film festival that next be, year. That would be great. Yeah. I would love come to on, do dude. that. You gotta do it. <laughs> I've gotta do uh, it. Yeah. But anyways, uh, this is about pleasure uh, chatting again with um, my good old pal we go back a couple decades now uh, al frazier um and uh you know this is the movie morlock i kind of thought i was going to be done with the show but and i guess i'm just kind of continuing it's sort of more like when i'm not pressured to do it it's just when i feel like doing it or when someone like al says hey let's do an episode i will say yes let's do it so you too can reach out to uh movie morlock at gmail.com and uh you can certainly request an audience with yours truly and we can put something together um but anyways uh Good luck if anybody's watching the Oscars. I'm not going to do it, but I am going to talk about it uh, on the next episode. All right. All right. Cool, man. Good to talk to you. All right. Bye, Al. Goodbye.